we have found that people's decisions don't always go with the best product. The best product, or you know, think of it like if you're playing poker, the best hand doesn't always win, right? In fact, it's the skill of the poker player that drives the wins more often than not. In fact, we saw a study, I, I was reading a study uh, that was conducted several years ago uh, where somebody wanted an organization wanted to understand is poker a, a, a game of chance or a game of skill? And from the research, they studied 103 million hands of online poker, 103 million. And I'm going to break it down and nuance it a little bit in circumstances where the stakes were higher and there was no showdown, meaning they didn't flop their cards to sh reveal their cards after the hand was won. Only 20% of the time did the winning hand actually win the best hand win. It was the 80% of the time, it was the decisions and the behavior of the, and the skills of the poker player that drove the win. And it's no different. We have, we have data that suggests it's no different in win-loss. It's not about the best product. It's about the, the ability of the human to connect with the other human, right? The person that has a problem and my ability to demonstrate as a salesperson um, that we can not only solve the problem, but we get you and we're going to solve that problem today and tomorrow, the now and later effect. Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers to uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Ryan Queller, Chief Delivery Officer at True Voice from Corporate Visions. Ryan has had a very unique career thus far, going from the self-proclaimed king of the knots as the CEO and president of a mortgage bank to the chief delivery officer in the field of win-loss analysis. While you might think those two experiences couldn't possibly have anything in common, you'll be surprised to hear how Ryan has translated his early learning and experiences into the success he enjoys in his current role. Today, Ryan and the team at True Voice use their fully automated win-loss analysis platform to help their clients increase revenue and retention by discovering the root causes and decision drivers between opportunity outcomes. During our chat, Ryan and I discussed some of the common misconceptions surrounding During our chat, Ryan and I discussed some of the common misconceptions surrounding win-loss and what a product marketer can do to navigate them. Ryan also shares his thoughts on how to set up a win-loss program for success and how to revive a stagnating one. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey Ryan, great to see you and uh, hear you again. How you been? I've been good, Mark. Uh, you know, maybe not as good as you, but I'm I'm doing all right. Well, I'm happy you're here with me, regardless of how you're feeling. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who uh, didn't hear my appearance on Ryan's show, um, I was fortunate enough to be a guest of Ryan a couple months ago now. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. to be uh, on the opposite end of the microphone, as it were, and be back to my normal state of, of firing the questions your way. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a different experience to be on this side of the mic, isn't it? A little bit, right? I feel like a little bit more pressure, but I hope uh, at least our conversation today won't make you feel that way for, for very long. Uh, Mark, you're the easiest guy to talk to. No pressure. You know, looking forward to the conversation. All righty. Well, uh, you know, based on how our last conversation go, I'm sure this will be a great one for our listeners to enjoy. So let's get right into it then. Uh, can you walk me and our listeners through your career so far and what it is you do at Primary Intelligence? Oh, geez. Um <laughs> You know, buckle up. My career has been a, a weird, long, windy road uh, without getting lost too deep in the weeds. Um, some highlights were um, I ran a, a mortgage bank uh, back in the, the early 2000s. 
it was it was my pops. My dad started the, the U.S. National Finance was the name um, out in uh, Northern California, the San Francisco Bay Area. Ran that for about a decade. Sold it. Started a marketing agency because you know I was super qualified for that. And, uh, you know, from banking to marketing, it makes perfect sense, right? And I was the business end and I had a friend that was a, the creative, um, sold my interest in that, uh, got into business consulting, which is really where my, I think my skill set lies um, and uh, worked in change and change management, helping leaders know how to, to lead change in an organization. Um, about seven years ago, six and a half, seven years ago, landed here at uh, what was called primary intelligence and is now called corporate visions, as we were recently acquired a couple months ago by our new parent company. I don't call them overlords because that's the wrong, that's not the way to call, you know, treat somebody who just purchased you. No, they, they've been wonderful. Corporate visions is a fantastic company and we are so happy to be here. Uh, my job at, at CVI at Corporate Visions uh, Inc. is uh, I'm the chief delivery officer. So uh, in win-loss, uh, all of the insights that are produced from our research roll up somehow underneath my team. Um, and I also lead up our CSM uh, organization as well. So that's a little bit about me and my my background. Uh, you know, not terribly exciting, kind of run of the mill, you know, you know no big deal. Well, if not exciting, definitely unique. Uh, you're definitely, uh, without a doubt, the only product marketer, or not product marketer, but guest I've had on the show, who's come from a background in mortgage banking. And I want to, I want to dig a bit deeper there. Is there anything from that past experience that you felt has, has you know, been applicable in your current role uh, with with mm. CDI, or or do you feel like that was from a bygone era, or from from a you know a part of your career that you haven't necessarily needed to lean on as much as you would maybe other parts? with the, you know, the consultancy that you started? Man, that, that's such a great question, Mark. Um, the experiences that we, that we have is the currency of life, right? So uh, we, we live the currency that we pay for and the experiences that we have in this life is, is really the, the amalgamation of who we are. And I'm no different. My experience at U.S. National Finance made me the person that I am today, or at least helped me on my way. Um, with, again, um, my dad ran the company. I was a, a recent college graduate and wanted, I was on my way to graduate school to be a therapist. I wanted to be a psychologist. That, that's what I've always wanted to do. I still kind of do if I'm being very honest and my wife and my kids probably hate it because, you know, I'm always trying to, but they, they, they hate that part of me. I think at least I would, if I were them. Uh, anyway, uh, was going to take a break in between, uh, graduate, postgraduate, and my dad, um, this will give you all the insight you need to know about my father. Um, my dad uh, tells me, hey, uh, why don't you come work for me? And when that psychology crap doesn't work out for you, you'll have a way to support your family that you're because I was just married, um, you know, a way to support your family. And I was like, well, that's my father, Mr. Jim. Uh, anyway, long and the short of the whole thing is I went to work for him and shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed with uh, a terminal uh, cancer, terminal illness. And so I ended up staying on to care for the family business and the experiences that exploded in my life at that point were the most, 
talk about not qualified, not prepared, not ready, just absolute all of the knots. That was me. I was Ryan, the king of the knots, like could not do. Nobody wanted to, to, to follow me. And I was the leader somehow. And so I, I often say that I got my MBA in the school of hard knocks. So uh, long and the short of the whole thing is, yeah, uh, the experiences that I lean on from the, the early days at U.S. National Finance are all about understanding systems. So systems understanding for me is the king of kings. It is the, the place where I love to play because I, I believe if I can understand the system and the system isn't just policy process and procedure, it's largely the behaviors that are associated with those things. It's the people in the system that really make things go or don't go. And so I, I lean on that quite a bit. And I learned that early in my career at U.S. National Finance. Man, we could we could unpack my whole like psyche in in those 10 years that I was at U.S. National Finance, man. It was a wild run. Oh, I can only imagine. And while we don't have time to do that today as much as I would love to, because it sounds like there's a, a ton to unpack there and, and dig in a bit deeper. What I would love or, or what I wanted to highlight for our listeners is, you know, oftentimes I hear feedback from listeners of the show who are aspiring product marketers or people who are just starting out in product marketing or competitive intelligence or some field uh, related to either of those two, um, you know, areas of focus. And they, they will often say, I don't know what I'm doing, right? I'm the solo PMM or solo person in this role. I'm a team of one. I report into marketing or product. Uh, and the person I'm reporting into, they have some, you know, product marketing or, or CI or, or win-loss experience, but not enough to really give me the guidance or reference check to see if I'm doing things correctly. And what I love about your story and your experience is that, you know, it sounds like you couldn't have been, by your own admission, more unequipped to take on the role that you maybe found yourself in at that time. And if, you know, you think being a solo PMM and stuff, I can only imagine what taking on that kind of business by yourself can be like. And if you were able to get through that and, and you know, power through and land where you are today, I think the takeaway there is, you know, don't be, don't be so put off by your lack of experience or so discouraged by your lack of, you know, guidance to feel that you can't succeed uh, and progress onto mm -hmm. the next step within the role of your career. Um, cause there's people out here every day kind of faking it till they make it. Uh, and, and if Ryan can fake his way through, through leading a bank, uh, I think anybody can, can fake their way through product marketing, at least at the start. It is true. Queller can pull the wool over anybody's eyes and make them believe for at least a short period of time. No, no. What, what you just said was right on Mark. I mean, um, at the end of the day, n let's be very honest. Nobody is qualified, uh, at all ever to start anything new other than you have a desire to do the thing. My belief is if you have a desire to do the thing and the work ethic that will match it, you'll figure it out. You know, pe people are smart. People are willing to be patient. At least I I've had the benefit of that. Um, and so, no, I, I agree with you 100%. And although you, you do feel that um, uh, imposter syndrome sometimes, uh, so does everybody else. And so it's it's like we're all imposters, and if we're all imposters, none of us are. That's the logic that I'm using anyway. I love that. I think that's way more eloquent than what I just said. So we'll 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 leave that there because I don't think I could have said it any better. The other area that I, I found so fascinating is your, you know, your initial desire to to pursue psychology. Mm. I, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned that you know your your wife and your family tend to deal the uh, feel the brunt of that passion. 
um, or, or maybe that, uh, you know, misplaced interest in that field. Uh, I'm curious, do you find that there's an element of, of psychology or, or therapy at play when you're working with, with clients in your role today and kind of delivering some of those insights? Is there an element of that at play? Um, have you found? Oh yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people trying to figure out how to work with other people. You know, none of us, not yet anyway, none of us are robots living in a, in a box by ourselves, you know, punching numbers with no windows in a room with no windows. You know, it's like, we're, we're not at that point yet. You know, who knows AI could happen. And I've been reading smarticles and, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, um, people working with people, influencing and, and creating trust with people, creating credibility with people is uh, a deep rooted it is deeply rooted in psychology and so um the therapy that i find uh most helpful is, is not the self-medicated type of therapy but it's the therapy that um allows people to grow relationships and trust and there is definitely tons of psychology uh, that, that revolve around that uh, you think about anybody that's listening today, if, if you're thinking about the jobs that you've loved the most and the, the times in your life that have been the best, it likely, likely revolves around some sort of change, something that's changing in, in, you know, in front of you. And it doesn't matter what it is, small, big, medium, doesn't matter, some sort of change and other people. And so if we can find ways to work with other people in the midst of change, there is opportunity for uh, you know, life to be its fullest, at least for me, that that's how I see it. I don't know. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great perspective for others to, to maybe consider and, and take, uh, you know, with them day to day, um, when they're in the role, especially as product marketers, because, you know, we yeah. find ourselves in the middle of so many different teams, so many different personalities, either within or across those teams. And there needs to be an element of recognizing that, yeah, you know, we're not working in silos. We're not, you know, product marketers, you know, working independently, even even for those product marketers who are doing freelance product marketing or doing uh, product marketing consultancy, um, they're still having to engage with clients and work with those those teams and individuals. So I think that's a great attitude to have. So thank you for sharing that uh, with me now. Yeah. Let's uh, let's shift gears ever so slightly because I feel like you know you and I we like to chat. We could probably go, keep going down this path day. For, forever, all, all day. day, all day. So let's shift gears to to really the focus of our conversation uh, today, and that's uh, you know win-loss. It's a big meaty topic. It comes up a lot in product marketing circles. Uh, so I really want to answer some of the questions that I know I've had when navigating win-loss, and I'm sure others have as well. So let's just jump into the first question here. You know, oftentimes in product marketing, there's elements of it that get, you know, to create a word templatized. So everybody's got their own process and their own step-by-step -step guide to follow to create the perfect, you know, positioning and messaging, to create the perfect competitive intelligence program, the perfect win-loss program. And what I have found in my career is while those templates and those guides are a great starting point, in theory, they're great, but in practice, they're not always the easiest to follow or they can sometimes fall apart. Um, so I'm curious, why do you think, you know, spinning up a win-loss program isn't always uh, a case of just following a step-by-step -step process? Uh, and how would you define win-loss, you know, what it is and what it isn't? Uh, those are two large questions. Let me see if we can digest them together. So uh, first, uh, win-loss is no different than anything else that a product marketer has to deal with or confronts. And that is you have um, 
going back to my my statement about systems thinking, you have both the the policy process procedures, the systems, um, and then you have the humans that that engage with the systems. And I think really where um, people that are spinning up win loss uh, start to fall apart is when they bifurcate those two things. And really, they're not the behavior. The humans are are the system. Everything else is just stuff. It's it's literally stuff to make the humans better, more powerful, faster, efficient, productive, whatever. And so if we if we separate out, if we live in this kind of dualistic space where the human's behavior lives outside of the system, we have a problem. That problem becomes checklists. Checklists by themselves don't drive change. Can't, never will. Sorry, not going to happen. So if you're a PMM out there and you're listening to this and you want to spin up not just win-loss, but anything else, you have to have your ducks in a row. You got to have your product checklist. You got to have your systems, you know, pre-flight checklist, whatever it is, you got to have that. Also understand that it must support behavior change. At organization, uh, at organization X, it doesn't matter who you're talking about, the biggest obstacle that PMMs bump into when spinning up win-loss are, are learning how to connect with and influence in a trusting way other people. And so um, it's it's hard to spin up because of because of that. It's onboarding stakeholders, it's it's aligning of frontline people all the way to the top. It's there's a lot involved with the human relationship part of it. That's the first part of your of your question. So um what win-loss is not. Win-loss is not the only research that you should ever do. <laughs> okay, don't stop at win-loss. Also, don't avoid win-loss. Having Inviting the voice of your customer to be heard and megaphoned is paramount. However, win-loss has a, a fairly uh, purpose-built, um, it, well, it's purpose-built. Win-loss is exactly what it, in, in its, its title, what it is. It is to help us understand why a person that you were selling to made the decision that they made, right? There's typically four areas that drive decisions for, you know, in, in primary intelligence, now corporate visions has been doing win-loss analysis for 22 years, right? A long, long time, really kind of the industry gold standard around, standard around win-loss. And there's four kind of categorical areas that almost every time or invariably come up. That is, um, how did X company compete against the other vendor, right? How did the vendors compete against each other in price, product, sales motion, and company? Um, now, when I say company, that means things like um, references or deliver what was sold or some ongoing support, those types of things. Um, now, what win-loss is, is understanding how those four categorical areas interplay to help drive a decision. What it is not, win-loss analysis is not product, a deep, deep product review. You'll get some product information, but you'll see a lot of product marketers and a lot of product folks go, hey, that's not deep enough in the product. And of course it's not. Because what we're talking about and focusing on are people's decision-making process. Now, it's easy to then rabbit hole down. Well, isn't the product and the feature functionality of the product part of the decision-making? Yes. However, 
we've also found, and there's other research outside of our own beliefs, there's, there's, um, we have found that people's decisions don't always go with the best product. The best product, or, you know, think of it like if you're playing poker, the best hand doesn't always win, right? In fact, it's the skill of the poker player that drives the wins more often than not. In fact, we saw a study, I, I was reading a study uh, that was conducted several years ago, uh, where somebody wanted an organization wanted to understand is poker a, a, a game of chance or a game of skill? And from the research, they studied 103 million hands of online poker, 103 million. And I'm going to break it down and nuance it a little bit in circumstances where the stakes were higher and there was no showdown, meaning they didn't flop their cards to sh- reveal their cards after the hand was won. Only 20% of the time did the winning hand actually win the best hand win. It was the 80% of the time, it was the decisions and the behavior of the, and the skills of the poker player that drove the win. And it's no different. We have, we have data that suggests it's no different in win loss. It's not about the best product. It's about the, the ability of the human to connect with the other human, right? The person that has a problem and my ability to demonstrate as a salesperson um, that we can not only solve the problem, but we get you and we're going to solve that problem today and tomorrow, the now and later effect. So what win-loss analysis is not, not deep product. It, it's some product and some of the some of the organizations that we do the research for do get a good amount of product, but it's not solely that. It is also not meant to be a um, divisive tool. Anybody listening to me right now, <laughs> that is running win loss. If you are using win loss as a means of, you know, punching down on people, you are failing and you are failing miserably. So win loss is not meant to be a, and if you're employing it to stop it, stop now. Um, It's not meant to be a, a punishment tool. It is meant to reveal areas of potential improvement that can uh, benefit both the customer that you're selling to and, and your people uh, for, for through which we're doing the research. So I would say those are probably the, the top two things that, that win loss or not. Um, and what it is, is literally an exploration into the, the way that people make decisions. So back to psychology, right? So how are people making decisions that that's what it is. That's what it's not. Does it, is that clarify a little bit? Is I mean, did I miss something here? No, that was honestly, that was, probably one of the best definitions of win-loss that I think I've ever heard. And I think what really drove that home for me was that poker analogy. And I think for anybody listening, who's in a position where they need to get, you know, cross-functional buy-in to start up a win-loss program, copy what Ryan said word for word. And it will make sense to, I think, just about anybody who is listening to you. I, I think the, juxt- the positioning it as this, you know, it's not always the company with the, 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 the best hand. Uh, that wins. It's it's this idea of this game of skill and, you know, the better gamesmanship that ultimately wins the day, I think just helps frame it and ground it in something that a lot of people are probably familiar with. Because again, this idea of win-loss can come out as like, oh, sometimes overwhelming. It's this, there's going to be so many different people's day-to-day that's going to be affected and all these processes are going to change. And yes, there's an element of that. But if you focus on just the enormity of of what it can be or what it could become, you can scare a lot of people away. And I, I think just to go back on your point about, um, you know, checklists and win-loss not being just this deep dive into product, 
I think sometimes PMMs can get stuck in the trap of, of working with their partners in product and focusing on the product differences because it's, it's easy, right? Like you can create a checklist of product functionality and say, well, we do this better than competitor. They do this than us, but we do this better than them. And then at the end of the day, yeah, you have this nice, nice, neat comparison chart or these insights as to where your product wins or loses, but that's not going to tell the whole story as you explained with why you may or may not have won a deal. So I just wanted to highlight those two pieces because uh, to me, I'm sitting here listening to you and just my mind is, is being blown inside um, from, from all the goodness you're sharing. So, so thank you for that. I think that was incredibly helpful. Absolutely, man. But it's, it's, it's easy to, in not faulting a product marketer here. I mean, it's really easy, especially when product marketing or product is driving win loss. Look, look, let's, let's not make any bones about this. The person that cuts the check for the win loss program has a certain set of expectations. And if I'm in product or if I'm a PMM and I'm cutting the check to fund a, a win loss program, there's certain angles or axes I'm going to grind to get the information that I need because why? Because it was my budget, damn it. So therefore I get what I say goes, right? That's just how it is. That's the, let's not bury our heads in the sand and, and think otherwise. That's how it is. However, when we stop there, that's when the problems are created. And, and that's what you're saying. Um, on top of that, product marketers and product in general, they typically have lots of different sources of, of feedback and data. Um, and there's been this evolution. I want to bring this to, to your listeners as well. There's this evolution that we have observed with people's and organizations' relationship with data over the years. Historically, it was everybody from the C-suite down to the front line. It was give me data. I need data. Just give me data. Give me all the data. I need data because I can't make a decision without the data. And so data started showing up and then it kept coming and kept coming. And then it became so heavy data is now, you know, being stashed in the walls. Uh, we, we don't know where, where's the data. I don't know. It's everywhere. It's, it's, I, I, I can't see there's too much data. Then it evolved with people, you know, C-suites and everybody saying, look, there's too much data. I don't know how to make sense of the data. So give me insights. I now need insights. And so insights started to show up just like data. So much insights, insights. We're, we're filthy with insights. There's so much insight. People don't know what to do with the insights and the evolution of where we're at today in today's space uh, is it's evolved from giving insights to tell me what to do. People are looking for now recommendations and they need to have confidence in the recommendation based on the insights and the data, the data that, that drives the insight, the insight that drives the recommendation. So you product marketers out there that are listening to this, if you're spinning up your win-loss analysis, uh, your, your win-loss program, one of the things that you need to do is be able to connect the tissue north from your program. And you need to understand what the metrics that matter to the people north of you are. So as a pro, as a PMM that's maybe running win-loss analysis, you may have metrics that are really important to you. Things like conversion rates or the types of insights, the amount of insights that are being created. But we need to translate those insights into actionable recommendations to the business unit leaders that we're serving, be it product, sales, marketing, doesn't matter. And if we don't have the connective tissue north to that BU, the, the likelihood of us then connecting the tissue all the way north to the organizational goals, be it growth, retention, scalability, 
cogs focus, margins improvements, whatever it is, is also going to fail. So as we're thinking about spinning up and what went, you know, going on this, this vein of what win loss is and is not, it's imperative if we're going to be successful that we first understand the people that we're serving and the things that are most important to them so that we can derive insights from the voice of from the voice of our customers that can benefit them in the metric and impact the metrics that they care about. Does that make sense, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on this, on this idea of, you know, identifying who the key stakeholders are and and what metrics they are trying to influence. I I want to kind of pick your brain on, you talked earlier about, you know, when win loss isn't what it isn't about, you know, working with partner teams and this element of, you know, people and psychology. And I think one of the teams that is, well, should be directly involved in any win-loss program, I would imagine, is, is sales, right? Mm. And, and I think within product marketing, sales can sometimes get this reputation of being, let's call it resistant to change, or not always being the most willing to adopt new processes or practice or ask new questions or, or change the way that they sell to support something like a win-loss program. So as someone who I'm sure has worked with countless sales teams and sales leaders over the course of their career, why is it, do you think, that sales gets a reputation? and and what advice would you have for a product marketer who finds themselves working with a sales team or a sales leader who might not be the most receptive to spinning up a win-loss program? Yeah. So that's a wonderful question. And yes, yeah, sales can be not only resistant to change, um, they will downright um, crush, try to crush change in many regards. Um, that is partially due to think about their job. Their job is extraordinary. A salesperson's job is not an easy one. It's very difficult. And in today's day, and especially in B2B sales, in today's environment, when they have such a small percentage of the brain share or time share of the person that they're trying to sell to, I mean, some, some research shows that it's as little as 10% of the total buying cycle might be face-to-face with a, and and might even be virtual face-to-face with a seller and a buyer, you know, historically back in the day, it was the other way around where you'd spend all this time, you know, wine, dine, golf, three martini, lunch, all the whole thing, you know, not that I condone that such behavior, but you understand what I'm saying. It has shifted. And so sales are so focused on selling the thing that sometimes they they misinterpret or get so locked in on what it means to sell um, in today's environment that they resist outside help, opinion, or change. Overcoming that is the game for anybody that's running win-loss. Without sales, you're going to bump into this singular problem, and here it is. Here's the dirty little secret that nobody wants to talk about, but here's the reality. Sales holds the keys to the kingdom with your contacts. The opportunities that the win-loss analysis needs to be conducted on is gatekeeped by sales. If they're not down, if they're not down to play, ain't no way you're going to get that sample, that operate those opportunities to go to the research on. And if you don't get the research, you have no win-loss program. You've got Bubkiss. It's one of my favorite words. I love that word. You got Bubkiss. You got nothing, not a zilch, because you can't go, go do the research on air. You have to have the opportunities to go do the research on. So it's imperative. It's paramount. It is the game to figure out how to onboard and, and work with your, your brothers and sisters at arms in sales. 
you have to be able to connect with those people. And by the way, it starts with the sales leader. That goes back to, that goes back to why understanding the business unit metric is that that they care about is so important. If I go to a sales leader and tell them something about, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why the product is great or not, not great. They're going to go, okay, I, I, okay, I, cool. Thank you. High five. Never to be talked to again. But if you go back to a sales leader who might be really focused on net new business, right? Uh, inc- increasing their net, do, net new business win rate. And you come to them and say, look, we have a way of helping you increase your net new business win rate. Uh, it will require very little time ongoing. There's a little bit of lift up front, but we need your help to get it onboarded. And once we have it going, we will produce an insights train that help you, an insights trains and recommend, recommendation train that helps you coach, guide, improve, and correct individual sales rep behaviors as is reported by your their buyer not by anybody else not by some sales coach who knows better who wrote a book not by uh, a product person not by um, uh, a new executive that's new to the organization because we've had turnover and they're going to make their stamp on the organization therefore they're going to bring an x sales methodology or framework it's from the voice of your buyer and that is the vo- only voice that matters and so when you, when you can connect North to the business unit metric, specifically in sales, you then got somebody to talk with. After that, you also need to help the sales leader understand that win rates don't change. People change. Okay, let me repeat myself. Metrics are a measure of people <laughs> in, this, in this sense, Okay. So metrics don't change. People do. If people change, we'll change the metric. Of the four categories that I talked about before, product, company, price, and sales experience. The one that is to change product requires lots of cycles, lots of research. It's a heavy lift. To change the market perception of your reputation, market perception, that could take even longer and is well, that's really difficult to do. Lots of money, big American dollars need to be spent to make that happen. Pricing can be changed fairly and relatively easily, but it's still a lift. The lowest hanging fruit to improve win rates is in change of behavior. Interesting to note Coming back to the product, not always the the best product wins in the deal. It's the ability of the salesperson to understand, demonstrate an understanding of the unique, the person in front of them, back to the human, the person in front of them, their business, their unique workflow or needs, their culture, and be able to integrate themselves, demonstrate that they understand it so well that they can integrate themselves into that, those circumstances and solve the problem, not only from uh, the table stakes, does the product have feature functionality X, Y, and Z, but also we can be the right partner for them. So overcoming the, the, the sales uh, objection is the game. It needs to start with the the executive level. You need to you need to understand what their metric is that matters to them, and then help them understand that it's not win rates. Metrics don't change by the by the, on their onesie. That's a technical term. Um, they don't change on their onesie. They change when people change, and the people that need to change in order to drive win rate, salespeople. And have you found you know an experience that 
again, just through the nature of humans, when you're presenting an executive, uh, you know, a sales leader with that kind of story and that, and that explanation that there's an acceptance that, Hey, listen, you know, some members of the team might not be willing to come on this journey with us and they might not be willing to change and they might not find themselves a home at this company anymore. And does it have to be something that gets discussed as part of the spin up a win loss program? Or is that something that you have found tends to happen in very rare circumstances? Because I know that in my experience, while I've you know never had to you know see members of a sales team be let go because they were hesitant to change, I would imagine that sometimes is is unavoidable, just given the nature of, of people and the different you know levels of receptiveness to change that just exist out there. So, have you found that to to be a common thing or something that you've had to to work through with sales leaders? Oh, absolutely. Uh, pe- sales reps, listen, uh, change is only a good idea when it's my idea, right? I mean, that's just a matter of fact, human nature. People don't want to change unless it's my idea. And so somebody coming to me and telling me, hey, especially somebody who's not in sales, right? A PMM, uh, marketing products. Hey, uh, by the way, you need to change salesperson. What? You've never carried a bag. You don't know me. Like, who are you? Right. And so there's all of this resistance to change because it's not their idea. It's not coming from oftentimes a peer. And so, uh, yeah, the answer is hell yeah. Everybody resists change. Uh, also it's important to help a sales leader understand that you don't need everybody. Let me, let me explain if a sales leader, again, going back to those metrics that I was talking about, if the business unit metric is I need to improve win rates from, let's say 50% to 60%, I need 10 point gain in win rate in order to drive X amount of revenue. Okay, cool. How many people do you actually need then to win over into participating in the win-loss to help them improve? And the answer is not everybody. You only need a small percentage of people to improve their individual win rates to get you that net gain that you're looking for. And so identifying very early who the people are, because there are sales leaders out there, there are sales coaches, there are sales people, and a lot of them that want to improve, that want to get better. In fact, it's typically the top performers that want the coaching. Top performing salespeople are the ones that want the coaching, want the feedback so that they can go get better, right? It's it's this wonderful cycle. And so the, helping a sales leader or a sales coach identify a, a sales manager um, that it might be an early adopter to help you get some proof points, some wins. Hey, look, this is what we did. This is the research that we got. We were able to flip that deal from a, a, it was a no decision to a win, or we found out that we lost and we found out some great details. We went back and we won the deal back, which are both circumstances where, you know, people have, have done those things. You get those types of wins and those naysayers become maybes. And those maybes after repeated wins become, okay, I'm ready to play. Now there are a percentage of folks that will never never come online and that's okay. They typically won't be at your organization forever either. Uh, my, my point is um, to overcome the, I don't want to play um, issue is a matter of helping them see the benefit that, that, that are going to derive from, from doing this. We get that by getting a peer to be your champion internally. It becomes very difficult for somebody who is not a, a, a team member initially to help drive the point home. We need to get somebody internally to be our, to be our champ. Yeah. And on this topic of, you know, getting people on board and winning people over with results, I want to throw a couple of hypothetical scenarios with you and just 
again, based on your wealth of experience, gauge how you might go about navigating those scenarios and how you might solve some of the issues I'm going to throw your way. So, so let's say hypothetically, EMM working with the head of sales or a senior sales leader to drive forward uh, a win-loss program. And you're in the early days, but you're not necessarily seeing the results that you would maybe hope for um, within you know, the early days of the program. Um, you're not seeing an upward trend in that specific North Star metric that you had identified with that sales leader to be the focus of the program. And you feel as though you're starting to lose people. How would you go about diagnosing what might be contributing to that lack of, of movement in the metric? Um, is it, is, 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 is there a, you know, not necessarily one size fits all approach, but is there a way to navigate and diagnose what could be, you know, causing that issue? Yeah. So, um, absolutely. There's a couple, a couple things that come to mind. First, the North star metric or the metrics that everybody cares about are lag measures, right? They're, they're measures that we have very little influence on and we don't know what they are until the, the final horn has, has, has gone off and the game is over. You look at the scoreboard. Oh, there's the score. Um, once those lag measures hit, they either are an, an oh yeah, or hit hell yeah moment, or they're an oh crap moment. Like we either won or we lost and oh no, there's nothing I could do about it. So bef- if you want to avoid getting to that place, you, we need to early on identify what are the infl- predictive and influenceable lead measures or leading indicators that will influence that North star. So, um, lead measure behaviors, um, typically are the most influenceable again, coming back to sales are things like, um, you know, helping, having value conversations, tying back to doing, uh, discovery, uh, in a certain way that drives uh, revelation of beyond the spreadsheet criterion that that people use for decision making. You know, what are the offsheet criterion? And you only get that f- through doing experience, uh, experience discovery. Um, so one way to navigate, I guess what I'm getting at is one way to navigate around um, if we're not getting the, the lift towards the North Star metric is to not focus on the, the North Star metric, is to focus on the things that are predictive and influenceable of that thing. That way we can, we can iterate and change smaller. We can tweak in, in a smaller means and have a greater impact or more understanding of what the impact could be if we stay the course. So that's the first thing. The other is to ensure that you actually have the real North Star metric. That's another big issue. Um, as a PMM, one of our jobs is to sleuth. I mean, it really is. We have to be excellent sleuthers. We have to be, you know, the Sherlock Holmes with the the whole you know, magnifying glass and the hat and maybe even the pipe. I don't know. Maybe you're blowing bubbles instead of smoking because I don't condone smoking. It's bad for you. But long and the short of the whole thing is we have to be able to sleuth and really understand, truly understand what the metric is that matters to the business unit leader. They might say, oh, yeah, growth metric is really important to me. Uh, win rates is really important. But really, they might that might be shrouded in something that's very pressing for that that stakeholder this quarter. For example, um, you may that stakeholder may be super concerned with a an ankle biter, an up and coming competitor who might be due to the market, might not be best in class, but is winning on good enough. And they're really concerned about that competitor. So understanding that the top level metric is is imperative, but what are the just-in-time issues that they're focused on? We call them burning questions. What are the burning questions that the stakeholder is, is thinking about right now? Not, you know, a quarter at a time, not 
each at a time, not year at a time. Right now, what is bothering you? And can we get insight and recommendation around those issues? That will make a difference and, and will help you overcome that resistance and those problems and help you diagnose why the top level metric isn't moving, possibly because they're not focused on that top level metric. I love that. And, and you know, one of the, the biggest things I love about doing this show is when we get to these nuggets of practical advice, I think you just hand delivered two very practical approaches to diagnosing that issue. So thank you for that. Let me jump to my second scenario, if I can throw another one at you. So let's say we're a bit on the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, again, PMM, we've been, you know, helping support and, you know, steward this win-loss program with a variety of cross-functional stakeholders for, let's say, three, four, five years now. Like, the program is mature. It's running well. But maybe things lately have started to feel stale. Maybe we're not seeing the same influence in those, you know, leading metrics, as you alluded to earlier, or even the North Star. And we're not seeing that positive lift that we can directly attribute back to the efforts we're investing in the win-loss program. As a PMM, how would I go about figuring out, okay, what do I need to change? What needs to shift? How do I get us back on track? It's so that is a funky question, my friend. And I'm going to try and try and give a good response here. I love that question. Actually. Um, <laughs> this, this might lead down a rabbit hole, but I promise there is a, a payoff. And that is um, macroeconomics. So a, a mature win-loss program is not a win-loss program that has been running for four or five years. That's just time that has passed. In fact, we all have uncles and aunts and cousins and friends that are old, have years on them that are not mature, right? So <laughs> I might be one of those people. My, one of my friends might listen to this episode like, Queller, you're the guy, you're, you're the dude, right? I might be that guy. I don't know. But a mature win-loss program isn't necessarily the, the amount of time that's been running, although that's definitely part of it. It's also the impact that it's having on the business need, those metrics, the business needs, and the business focus. Let me explain. In today's macroeconomic environment, there has been a massive shift. It's been a subtle, but the impact has been massive in where revenue is coming from. Over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years, Everything was all about new business acquisition, new logo uh, acquisition. It was all about driving revenue through new acquisition. And everybody that's listening right now, follow the money. Why? It's because it was directly connected to uh, top top level or frontline or top level um, revenue. And front level or top line revenue is really attractive to investors. Okay. And so investors like, oh, look at that revenue growth up there. It's so great. It's so beautiful. Here's hundreds of millions of dollars to fund your venture. And that's where, that's where the money is. Well, with the macroeconomic climate changing and shifting, um, it turns out revenue from new logo acquisition is becoming more and more difficult. So where do our growth numbers now come from? And it turns out in today's, in today's macro, we're we're talking about 60% of revenue for an organization, new revenue coming from a foreign organization, not coming from net new logos, but coming from existing customers. And if that's the case, if that's the environment we live in today, what if we shifted the win-loss program? And if you don't have a win-loss program that can be nimble and shift from a, just a focus on net new logos and net new deals, 
and, and be able to shift into a customer experience kind of play, then we don't have a mature win-loss program. Let, let me go a little further. The voice of your customer matters from a win-loss and a buying and a decision-making process, but the buying pattern doesn't end with the initial purchase. People are constantly evaluating, reevaluating, and making decisions for their next purchase while they're in the middle of the current contract. And if we don't have an understanding of what's bothering a customer in the moment, we run the risk of a churn. And that cuts well into that 60% of net new revenue. Not only are we not growing an account, they're now bouncing and that's a problem. So the maturity of a, a win-loss program shouldn't be just measured in the amount of time that it's been around, but how nimble it can be to answer to the, the call of the, the shifting economic wins, the greater economic wins, and also the change needs, changing needs of your stakeholders. I love that. Again, such practical advice. And I think you hit the nail on the head and you know, listeners can find any number of stories um, across any number of sources that basically describe that exact macroeconomic station as, as you've outlined it. And, you know, I, we're even seeing that, um, you know, in some of my, you know, product marketing circles, our own organizations, you know, feeling that shift. I think everybody in the SaaS space is kind of under that same uh, environment. So yeah, it's interesting to hear you describe it so eloquently and directly tie the impact to a win-loss program, because I think it's easy Again, humans, we're, we, we look for simple answers to just say, oh, well, you know, the economy is taking a dump. So, of course, things are not going to be looking great. And that's, sure, a perspective to have. But I think the way that you frame it is instead to, to look at that scenario and say, okay, how can we level up or be nimble or evolve our win-loss program to account for that and continue to drive the insights and the recommendations that will keep our business moving forward? within that new environment and that new reality. So I think that's incredibly impactful. So thank you for sharing. Um, I want to get to my second last question here. And I think, you know, in the world of product marketing, we talk about win-loss, but it also gets talked about in relation to, or, um, you know, either in relation to, or at the same time as things like competitive enablement and competitive intelligence. So I think depending on who you talk to, those two things can be described as entirely separate, owned by different teams, sometimes different individuals at an org, or they can be described as one and the same. So again, based on your experience, I'm curious, how do you feel like those two things should ideally play together um, and how a PMM can leverage those two powerful tools and programs to continue to drive those insights that you know the various internal teams are always looking for? Yeah. So... Um, that, that's a great question. Uh, there is definitely a significant amount of competitive intelligence that comes out of win-loss. And the type of CI that comes from win-loss is different than the type of CI that is scraped from or mined from you know, doing internal research because it's from the perspective of the buyer, right? And just like product should not have just win-loss as the sole source of re research, Competitive intelligence should not have just the what they're scraping uh, online as the sole source of research. The voice of the customer, hearing the voice of the customer as they talk about the delta or the difference between the vendors and the buying experience, the product experience, the pricing, the pricing model, um, and you know market perceptions. That is a level of of CI that is invaluable for any organization. 
Now, the combining of the efforts is, is this. Another sign of a mature win-loss program is a win-loss program that can bring insights and recommendation and other things that people need to the spot where your buyer, your sellers are. Meaning this, sellers have a ton happening in their tech stack. You know, uh, they have 10 technologies that they have to master. And really what they end up doing is they master one and then they use Excel, Word, and a whiteboard. I mean, and, and sticky notes. And if you're really old school, you got a Rolodex. I don't, you know, I'll don't, don't worry about it. But long and the short of the whole thing is they have lots and lots of tech in their stack. And if they've already adopted competitive intelligence tool, a mature win-loss program and a mature win-loss provider should be, ought to be able to take the data from their platform and put it into the place where they're already going so that the sales team does not have to learn another tech piece and make it look like a concerted front. And it doesn't matter where it is, it needs to be able to, to be put there. And so how you combine efforts is by reducing the, the load, the workload on the salesperson by not having to learn a new tech stack and by bringing competitive intelligence to the place where they are already existing and caveating that maybe there's two different types of, of competitive intelligence. This is the stuff that we scraped and here's from the voice of the customer. That's an idea of how you could potentially um, combine efforts and, and reduce the cognitive load on the, the salesperson and make it a little more streamlined. No, I think that's super helpful. And also just so simple, right? Like I, I, I think oftentimes as, as product marketers, we have a tendency, or maybe this is just me to, to sometimes overthink and overcomplicate things because we want to optimize everything that we're possibly doing. Um, and I think what you've suggested is it doesn't need necessarily need to be that complicated where you've got to, you know, totally overhaul your CI program or your win-loss program so that the two can work, you know, hand in hand with one another. It, it could just be as simple as, hey, you've you're spinning up, you've got the CI program that works, you're spinning up win-loss. It's just a matter of taking the great out insights and learnings from your win-loss program and putting them in the same place where your CI insights live and packaging them in a way that your sales team can easily digest and, and action ultimately, because that's really what you're, you're, you want to deliver is actionable insights, as you said earlier. Um, so yeah, I think that's super helpful and something that I, you know, if I had to answer that question on my own, I probably would have overcomplicated things beyond belief. We tend to do that. I have a whole story about me going to the beach and about, you know, uh, teaching our kids about you know, tides and, and waves and no, nah, just don't, don't get knocked over by a wave. You know, it's like, I, I instead I talk about the moon and about the positioning of it. And, uh, you don't need to overcomplicate things. No, just, just look at where the wave is coming and lean into it. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I think, and again, maybe this is me projecting here, but I think part of that comes from this idea that because product marketers rely so heavily on these internal stakeholders and these other teams to get things done, you want to come from a place of, of expertise and intelligence and, and present this really well thought out plan. Actually, I even did this in my career at, at one point where I came up with this great deck that had this really thought out competitive intelligence program and how win-loss fed into it and how product insights fed into it. And I remember the feedback of my manager at the time was like, I'm sure this makes a ton of sense in your head. And this, this, you know, this makes such great sense to you. But as you explained it to me, you lost me because there's just too much happening. Like, just simplify it. And yeah, like I, I feel like that's a very easy trap for product marketers to, to fall into. So I appreciate you kind of simplifying things down in a way that really any product marketer can listen to what you just said and roll it out and probably uh, get some serious success from it. 
Yeah. People, um, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it was something to the effect of, you know, um, elegance isn't necessarily easy, but it's simple. And coming up with a, a simple solution that has the fewest number of moving parts possible, not the maximum, but the fewest number of moving parts possible is oftentimes, you know, Occam's razor, applying Occam's razor is oftentimes the best solution. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Ryan, this has been fantastic. You know, this is the second time now that you and I have chatted, and I feel like we could probably have a whole series of conversations because um, I think there's just so much experience to, to kind of exude from your brain. But I know I can't do that all day and I got to let you go. So before I do, I want to ask you my last question. And again, it's when I ask all my guests this season. And that's what do you think is an area focused in the realm of product marketing or more specifically win-loss that you think product marketers will have to pay extra attention to this year more so than in previous years? It's a lovely question. Um, people, product marketers are some of the most overworked and understaffed and under-resourced people in an organization. I'm sorry to say it, it's not going to get better. Right? It's not getting better, it's getting worse. And so it, it's been my experience that when this is the case in, in this statement I'm about to say, it's painful to hear the words come out of my mouth because I despise this statement, but doing more with less. Oh, I, I feel great. I got a shower now. I got, ah, forgive me. What have I done? I said it. I let it out the bag. I feel disgusting. Um, but the idea of doing more with less actually um, is it's impossible, but really what we need to do is learn how to, create trust and confidence with other people that are in the same boat as us. So as a product marketer, I think the thing that you need to focus on this year more than ever is our ability to connect with and work with and shoulder and link arms with shoulder the weight together and link arms with the people that we are tasked to work with. And the better that we can connect with humans, the better that we can build relationships of trust and confidence, the higher the likelihood of our finding success, even in the most difficult of times, which I think we are, we are entering. You know, I shouldn't be surprised that someone who had, who, you know, admitted at the beginning of this conversation that they, they, you know, considered a career in psychology came up with a very human centric answer, but that does not diminish the value of it by any means. I think that's a super, super helpful piece of advice. Um, you know, we're all in this again, to, to say a phrase that gets used all too often and we're all in this together. Um, again, I feel kind of gross saying that out loud uh, now, but it, it is it is ultimately true, right? Uh, you know, we're all feeling the the pressure of you know having to deliver more with an ever dwindling amount of resources. And I think just to take a moment, whether it's in a meeting or a group outing, now that we're doing those again, to just say like, hey, this sucks at times, and this is hard, but at least you know we're all working towards the same goal. And we're trying to to do the best work that we possibly can. And I think giving yourself and your colleagues the space to kind of like vent in a productive way and get those feelings out is really helpful and really, really powerful. And I think because so many of us work remotely now, the, the opportunities to do that are becoming less and less because you're so focused on, I got a 30 minute Zoom call. We got a hundred topics to chat through. I don't have time to, to, to hear about, you know, what's going on at home or, you know, what your colleague said to you that really triggered you and, and got you upset or, or the pressure you're feeling from your manager. So. I love that advice because it uh, is something that we can so easily forget in our day to day. Awesome. Well, Ryan, this has been, again, such a great conversation. Like I said, I feel like I could keep talking to you forever, but I do have to let you go. Before I do, though, 
if anybody wants to, you know, reach out to you again, maybe they're setting up their own win loss program. Uh, maybe they want to, uh, you know, work with you in a more formal capacity. Uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Mark, thanks for asking. And if, and if anybody wants just to even just bat around ideas, happy to help and participate that way as well. Uh, best resources for you are at our website, primary www.primary-intel.com. Um, we are changing, as, as I mentioned before, we were acquired by corporate visions and that will change. But if you go to that website, it will forward you to wherever you need to be. Uh, and then second, you can feel free to reach, reach me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out and connect. You can direct message me. Happy to talk with you about the, the issues that you might be facing and uh, see if I can't help in any way. I, I'm, I can almost guarantee that someone will absolutely be taking up on that offer. Um, you know, again, although we've only been chatting for about an hour here, I feel like I've gotten, you know, six hours worth of, of advice from this, just this conversation alone. So anybody who, again, finds themselves with their solo PMM or PMM team tasked with taking on a win-loss program and they don't know where to start or they're facing a specific issue, I can't recommend reaching out to Ryan enough. Ryan, this has been fantastic. I'm sure we'll be able to connect again either on uh, this show or maybe your own in the future. Uh, and I look forward to the opportunity to connect with you again. Mark, man, thanks for having me. You're an awesome host and uh, you're so awesome that I tried to grow the facial hair like you. I didn't pull it off as well as you did, but uh, as you do, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one day when I grow up, I'll be like Mark. That's very kind. I feel like for the audio listeners, you're greatly overstating the strength of my facial hair. So thank you for that. I feel the like strength of my facial hair. <laughs> nothing, nothing but disappointment when people, uh, people see me uh, in real life or, or uh, catch a picture of me, but thank you for that, Ryan. I'll let you go. Thanks again for your time today. Cheers. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are.